This episode of Eye to Eye is brought to you by Janique Locks. If you're looking to get started, there's no better place. She specializes in all kinds. Dreadlocks, micro locks, sister locks, lock extensions, instant locks, interlocking, and more. If you're in the 757, please don't hesitate to contact her. You can find her on Instagram at Janique Locks. That's G-E-N-I-Q-U-E-L-O-C-S, Janique Locks. Or you can find her at her website, JaniqueLocks.com. Janique Locks, where locks are envied. All right, let's go ahead and start this podcast, man. soulless as far as introductions go uh thank you in advance for your prayers because it sucks anyway welcome to the latest and greatest edition of eye to eye short for inspired to inspire the podcast that is all about being open honest and real having uh conversations about life and faith and as always you know that we are willing to boldly go where most folks ain't trying to and today i have a funny feeling that is the epitome of our tagline, the conversation we're about to have. Uh, isn't that right, Devin? Uh, yeah. I think uh, our guest today is probably boldly going beyond where we boldly go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got a real funny feeling. I, I do. Uh, by the way, you know his name already. My name is Jordan. So we're excited. Uh, we're going to be having a really uh, awesome, great, fun, intense conversation uh, in just a few minutes with an amazing person that we will introduce to you shortly. Uh, but Dev, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing good, you know. Same old, same old. We're getting into fall. Uh, Halloween's coming up. Looking forward to candy. Uh, leaves changing. You know, getting to wear sweaters. And uh, yeah, outside of that, that's uh, that's pretty much status quo. And you? Um, I'm wrestling with the words that just came out of your mouth. I'm going to be perfectly honest, though. I'm finding solace in the fact that you didn't say anything about pumpkin spice. No. But... Not my jam at all. Yeah, you know, no, because, you know, so many people, oh my God, like I actually, I teach against this in my hermeneutics class. I call it PSL theology. Um, I think it's a branch of theology that it goes way down a deep, dark path that has nothing to do with anything, but some unnecessary way of finding ways to make things out of pumpkins and spice. <laughs> it feels like our guest's uh, next book topic. It could go into that. Yeah. It might be. <laughs> it really might be. Who knows? Oh, my dear God, I hope not. Um, then again, you know what? She she did some amazing stuff with this one. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. She'd probably do the same thing with that. Mm-hmm. I'm doing well. Um, and I'll just park it there because I'm really, really excited. We need to get down to business. Uh, so without further ado, uh, the person coming to the microphone uh, needs no introduction. See, I think I'm going to do that every time I say something about the people who we introduce because they probably need no introduction, although they should be introduced. Yes. Whatever. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, she's uh, an amazing individual. She's an author and she has created a book. And I do mean create. That gives uh, an objective historical exposition into the understanding of white evangelicalism 
and its impact on society, especially from a political and partisan standpoint. And I think it was, I'll just park that right there. And uh, so, yeah, we, we invited her to come onto the show and she is gladly obliged and we are elated uh, to have this difficult but eye-opening conversation with Miss Kristen Dumay. Kristen, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. We are excited to have you on the show. I think there's two books that you've written uh, so far, uh, at least that I saw when I when I searched. Uh, the one being, uh, the most recent one being John Wayne and Jesus, I believe, right? Is that what it? It's, it's Jesus. Jesus and John Wayne. I said it backwards. John backward. Wayne. Yeah. Okay. I put, I put the Duke ahead of our Savior. What's funny about that is for a few months now, and I probably mentioned it to Jordan, about maybe back in like March, April, I was like, Jordan, I feel like the American church has way too much David and not enough Jesus. And and then you released this and I heard about it on Holy Post and I was like, whoa, this this is great. Now someone totally took what I've been feeling and, and they put it on paper and now I get to read it and I don't have to do any of the work. This is great. Yeah, man. <laughs> she definitely did the work. So no kidding. Uh, like I said, we definitely want to get down to business. And um, I know Dev has a myriad of questions for a variety of reasons, mainly because a part of this was his comeuppance, which has got me chuckling real hard to myself yeah. right mm-hmm. now. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, we're just going to go ahead and get this very organic conversation started. And uh, Dev, what's the first question you got, man? Well, Not besides why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what Jordan's alluding to is there were a handful of times when I was kind of crash coursing through the book and I'd send him a text. I'm like, oh my gosh, this this is what happened when I was nine and oh this is what happened when I was 12 and oh this is what happened when I was 17 and uh you know very much growing up in that evangelical white church on the west coast uh this felt like my childhood and all these names that I haven't really followed or paid much attention to over the last 10-15 years they all kind of resurfaced and uh the way that you put all of this together as I wasn't sure what I was going to be reading about and it's like this historical document. You pretty much remove any type of opinion. It's just, this is how this happened. And you have this historical outline of why all these things happened and, and how it happened and how it got laid out. And the best analogy I could kind of come up with when I was reading it was, we can't see the forest for the tree, right? That's in front of us. But when you took this pullback and we see all of these trees planted in this white evangelical forest... <laughs> And and I'm looking at this going, oh my gosh. And so the questions come flooding in. So I think the first one I wanted to kind of throw out there was, why do so many conservative evangelicals today just dismiss the history of their involvement with the political side of things and try to kind of, you know, ride that fence versus it's pretty darn clear with what you lay out, how much these polarizing groups that not only kind of set up how the evangelical world was going to behave, but they completely aligned with politics. <laughs> yeah, well, first, let me say, just your comments there made me wonder if you've been reading my my uh, email inbox, because this is exactly what I'm hearing. I've heard from a couple of hundred of uh, evangelicals already since this book has has come out this summer, who have said exactly that, some version of, this is the story of my life. <laughs> And somebody actually said, you know, this is, um, yeah, I bumped into all these trees, but I've never been able to see the forest. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. <laughs> this is exactly what I hear every day uh, from readers. And, I, you know, I think that's partly because it's a, a 
cultural history. It's a history of popular evangelicalism. Books people read, the radio people listen to, the TV they watch. So it's really, you know, ordinary folks, not what's going on in in, um, seminaries, although there's a little bit of that too. Um, but yeah, your question of, you know, how, how is it that so many evangelicals have lived this life and yet never understood what's, what's really going on in the background? And I think that's partly the story that evangelicals tell themselves. It's, you know, that they're Bible-believing Christians and, you know, that they have biblical truth. And so they're not actually, um, quote, unquote, biblical truth is coming packaged up with this entire like culture instead of cultural values instead of ideals and because they're on the inside they can't really see that but people coming from the outside or bumping up against the boundaries right it's instantly visible that's absolutely the case for uh you know black quote-unquote evangelicals for you know people who, who who don't fit into the categories uh in terms of sexuality and gender um, but for those on the inside it just seems like this is just plain old christianity uh and they don't see how deeply cultural and political it long has been yeah and i was kind of also wondering your book like i said it lays out so many things and there's a lot of people that are kind of connected across eras and kind of you know passing torches along the way and I was wondering when I'm reading through it, how did all this happen? Like, is there one person who was planting this and it kind of happened? Or did it just kind of one, one tree came into bloom and these seeds just kind of all went and before you knew it, here we go? Yeah, there's not one person, but there are networks. Okay. And, and that's what I realized that, you know, we don't have, there's not one denomination, there's not one hierarchy um, within evangelicalism. And that's what makes it so hard to kind of uh, study. I, I finally concluded uh, that it made more sense to think of evangelicalism as a culture of consumption, a, a consumer culture, right? It's, it's you know, what are you buying? What are you reading? What are you watching? This this popular culture, but also um, understanding evangelicalism as a network. And so I'm talking, you know, who, what, where are the alliances? Where are the boundaries? Which organizations are connected to which other organizations? Who's blurbing whose book? You know, which which authors are you know is Lifeway Christian Books uh, you know stocking, and which ones are excluded? And so uh, I actually had three amazing student research assistants who helped me on this project. And at one point, one summer, we had three big sheets of butcher paper up in my office. Uh, filled with sticky notes, with names, with organizations. And then we had Sharpie, this like kind of web connecting. Okay, so these guys were at this conference together. He blurbed his book. He invited him. He went to that seminary, right? And it's just, that's really what evangelicalism is, right? And so there are boundaries, but there are these alliances and networks and there are power dynamics. And that's really what I needed to understand in order to tell this story. So there's not one person, but if we want to kind of put one person at the center, historically, it would be Billy Graham. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it was it was around him that this uh, kind of new evangelical identity coalesced in the 1950s, 1960s, and um, and he really did, uh, you know, put kind of both Christian nationalism and gender traditionalism at the heart of uh, Orthodox Christianity or his, you know, neo-evangelicalism. And he was also really well connected, you know, talk about networks, you know, starting up all sorts of Christian organizations and, and you know, Christianity Today. And, and he was 
the hubs, the most important hub early on in this story. Um, and so, so if we want a starting point, Billy Graham is not a bad place to start. Do you think where we are today and where this has kind of evolved to, do you think if Billy Graham were alive, he'd be approving? Or do you think he'd be like, what happened? <laughs> yeah, no, he would not because he changed some over time, right? Yeah. He really, um, particularly in uh, light of the Watergate scandal, he he came to uh, regret some of his own um, partisanship. And he he offered evangelicals a warning that most evangelicals, including his own son, have not heeded in terms of <laughs> distancing uh, the faith from um, partisan politics. And, uh, you know, and I think he also became a little more um, wary of militarism in the wake of the, the Vietnam War, more troubled by that. And so so he had evolved. So I think he would, in fact, be quite troubled by uh, where we are today. Um, yeah, see, I'm already in, in, I don't know how many different different head spaces right now. Uh, I don't want to take this off on, on a rabbit trail, but very briefly, can you speak to um, your understanding or your, your point of view concerning the culture that was developed in it? Like, you know, we, we get to see from your from all of the research that you've done, you know, the, the history of how it developed, but there had to have been some type of, of seedbed in it. And for me, I have no choice. I, I, I just believe that there was a culture of fear involved. And you address that kind of indirectly, in, in, in my opinion, which is not a bad thing. You establish something, and I want to call it bedroom ethics, but <laughs> you speak to like the, the the fear, I think, that was kind of the seedbed of the development of what became white evangelicalism. So I, I think to understand uh, this culture of evangelicalism, we have to go back to the Cold War era. Um, so the 1940s, 50s, 60s, this is when, you know, 1942 National Association of Evangelicals forms. Um, so pre-Cold War, that's uh, World War II still, but this, this idea of, uh, you know, a, American military might is, is good, and uh, this is a good war, and we're defending freedom and defending America. Um, but by the end of the 40s, we're, we're right up to the Cold War, and there, um, that's when things really start to come um, into alignment with what we see today. The idea that uh, America is a Christian nation and that communism is a threat to American families. It's anti-God, it's anti-family, it's anti-American. And the way to respond to that threat is through military strength. And, and so that really starts to crystallize these, these values. Um, and evangelicals also linked this to um, gender traditionalism. So to you need a strong male protector because somebody's got to be doing the defending. And the best defense is often a good offense. So, um, so, and again, this was this was through military might. Um, so you see that um, you see that developing. And yes, there there's this this kind of culture of fear, a fear of being invaded, a fear of what will happen to the church, what will happen to Christianity, even to God, if if we are defeated. That said, as I continued to research this book. Um, and, and honestly, that kind of parallels with with some of the language around evangelical support for Trump in 2016. To you know, skip a few decades here, um, mm -hmm. to under, understand that white evangelicals in particular were very afraid and kind of driven into the arms of the strong man. But when I looked to the history, I ended up kind of flipping the script. What I saw was time and again, it wasn't evangelical. Um, 
fear that was the result of mili or, or evangelical militancy that was the result of fear. It was rather that a number of leaders, powerful men, would be stoking fear in the hearts of their followers in their communities in order to enhance their own power, in order to consolidate their own power. And I saw that at the local church level um, with Jerry Falwell Sr., with Mark Briscoll, saw that in political organizing, and saw that in the, the wave of Islamophobia after 9-11, that rather than seeing evangelical kind of militancy as a result of these very real fears, I had to understand that leaders were very intentionally stoking fear in order to consolidate their own power, which doesn't mean the fears weren't legit or authentic in, in the hearts of right, their followers, but I just had to kind of reverse the order there. And going through the timeline of the book, it really became apparent to me that the most important thing that is needed when these groups try to shift a, you know, a whole mindset or a, a whole cause is an enemy of some kind. And coming out of World War II, right, Everyone agreed the Nazis were bad, but we soundly defeated the Nazis. Like they had to flee. Their country was completely demolished. And then Germany had to rebuild. You know, Hitler was gone. There was like, there was no remnant. Like that was just, it, they got flattened. The Cold War is the complete opposite. It went on forever. Like there was no, anybody really won. Like, so it was the perfect thing. That red menace was the perfect thing to stoke fear. And I've been wondering why over the last, especially the last year or so, why this communism, Marxism, all of, you know, socialism, all this stuff has come up because it feels like they're trying to bring up the enemies that we had before. So all the people who are, you know, I'm only 40, but the people who are 50, 60 and older who feared that those groups, they get to just fear them all over again. And that kind of leads that charge. So I'm wondering, you know, how important, and we're talking about the fear, right? So an enemy feels like it's got to be super important. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this kind of militancy does require enemies. It, it And enemies are really helpful for, again, consolidating power. And so what was striking to me was to see those, those enemies really, um, you know, change over time. So we started with communism. You know, that was really this, this catalyzing moment. And then we, uh, you know, we have feminism, we have secular humanism, we have liberalism, we have, uh, you know, a number of, of isms that come into play. Um, and then we have the end of the Cold War. And at that point, right, we see a moment of, of confusion, of openness in the 1990s. And yeah. it seems like, you know, maybe we need to rethink foreign policy here. <laughs> maybe we need to rethink what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculinity. Um, you know, let's reach out racial reconciliation. Let's, you know, there's this openness. And even, you know, maybe traditional gender roles, maybe we need, uh, maybe egalitarianism is okay. And, and, you know, kind of this openness. And this is when we have promise keepers and the evangelical men's movement and so on. But we also have kind of retrenchment in uh, certain corners of, uh, but wait, we have the culture wars, right? We have the war for the soul of America. And we have this kind of needing to, to gin up a new, a new battle because otherwise what happens to this kind of militant faith? What happens to the leaders 
who who are leaders because they can fight and defend, right? What what do we do here? Um, and so that was really interesting. The 1990s fascinated me as this moment of possibility. Um, and yet by the end of the decade, there's a, a kind of pendulum swing, a, a kind of rethinking that openness, embracing culture wars, um, and, and returning to, to more of a, a militancy in terms of masculinity in particular. And then we have September 11 happen. And that's when all of a sudden clarifying moment, you know, we have a new battle to fight. It's very much like the old battle, the Cold War, and evangelicals themselves said that, oh, you know, we just replace communism with uh, radical Islam. And we're, we're, we're back in, in the groove, you know, we, we, we know how to do this. And that, that's really exactly what happened. And so the, the enemy to fight is, is absolutely necessary. Um, but this this militancy then both and, and it's it's personal right it's, it's in terms of this gender ideal of you know God God made men to fight to be warriors and protectors uh, well if if every man needs a battle to fight you, you need enemies right you need enemies and and you need them you know in terms of foreign policy but domestically too so you know the people outside your church um, are they your neighbors that we should be loving as ourselves. Or are they potential threats that we should defend against, right? And so, so um, it, I think it's we have to understand that this ideology it it, it really does reshape the faith. And I mean, that's uh, the subtitle of my book. You said that that I was you know, very objective. Um, so thank you for that. Um, much of the book is just pretty straightforward history, a ton of footnotes, but there's a little there's a little critical framing uh, in the intro and the conclusion, and certainly the subtitle, right? And that's oh, how I we know, that. yeah. <laughs> well. When you agree, it's easy to say you're objective. So we'll just right, say right, that. Right. But, uh, you know, it's funny you bring up the 90s because I'm I'm a child of the 90s. I was born in 80. So that whole Cold War, late era, communism, Gorbachev, tear down the wall stuff. Like I remember it from history. I remember the wall coming down, but that wasn't like a true part of shaping my adolescence. The, the part that kind of shaped me was that culture war stuff. And it always, it was hard for me because... I I love cult, like I'm a culture nerd. I I love movies. I love books. I love music. Um, so growing up in the '90s, <laughs> where we didn't have all of that, it, it was it was almost like it was okay to be that. And then on the kind of on the peripheral of my church experience was I did go to a Promise Keepers. Uh, I was a part of a church that was one of the uh, plants of Jack Hayford um, outside of the LA area. So when you mentioned his name, I was like, oh boy, this is just really crazy. Uh, I did go to a summer camp where for an hour they tried to get me to speak in tongues and, you know, and I'm like, can you please just leave me alone here? I, and then eventually I just mumbled something so I could get away. Uh, <laughs> so I felt all of this a little, a little too much. And uh, <laughs> then, you know, of course I did connect the, the next enemy, which was going to be the Islamic extremists, the Taliban, all that stuff. But then we've kind of defeated them. Uh, well, we defeat them when it matters, and then they're still out there when we want to be scared again. Um, but I'm really concerned now what the enemy is, and you, you kind of alluded to it, was the neighbor. The fact is, is that other Americans are now the enemy. And that's where I've really had a struggle the last few years, because I'm like, it's, it's one thing if the enemy is somewhat tangible and somewhat outside our borders and whatnot. But when we're making it the people who make up this nation with us, there's kind of no going back <laughs> from there. Exactly. So and that's the second part of the subtitle, right? The fracturing of the nation that we've lost this 
real sense of common good of, you know, we are in this together and, you know, and, you know, to witness this is to love our neighbors and to, you know, parable of the good Samaritan, who is my neighbor? It's the person who's not like you, right? It's the, and, and so it, it does seem like a, a dangerous place spiritually, um, but also a dangerous place politically in terms of this is really driving polarization. And uh, I think it is undermining our uh, democratic institutions and democratic norms at this point. Yeah, um, I'd have to say besides the fact that I, I agree very heavily. One of the, the biggest pieces um, that we, we, we love to stress here is just the understanding of, of Christocentrics and the fact that it doesn't dismiss politics. It never has and it never will. Jesus himself uh, came and, and this book is not, this book that we have, this Bible is, is not just a, a history book. It is, is, a, is a political book. And we understand that Jesus himself, um, he is king. And at that time, you know, that would be president. Uh, you know, so that, that's kind of the mindset that I, I continue to keep. I, I wonder if as fleshing this out, you were able to see the development of, of the divide concerning uh, Christianity itself. You know, I, I, I don't know if you, you probably heard about the video that uh, Phil and, and then put out concerning why uh, white uh, Christians vote Republican and, and why black Christians vote Democrat. Um, I'm still confused at that one. And I still need a little bit of help. And maybe this is just my, my, my black self. So please, uh, I don't know if you can speak to, to that for about two seconds. Just, to, you know, kind of the, the somehow we, we developed this chasm. I mean, I understand unity through diversity, but I don't think this is exactly what they were talking about by any means. Uh, can, you, can, you, can you speak to where somehow we, we've managed to, to continually miss that mark specifically? Because, you know, in, in, in two weeks, um, decisions are being made and, and ballots are being cast and, and we don't know who's going to end up on the other side of that. But I know that what it's going to do is it's going to take a bunch of people who love the same God and make them not like each other even more. So I um I have seen that video all over every social media feed of mine and I haven't yet seen it because I've been giving so many interviews, but I was like, okay, everybody's saying this is awesome, so I have to look at it. Um so I'm going to just independently answer the question. But uh I mean you, you can't really understand white evangelical politics without looking at race. And um, this can be a hard conversation for white evangelicals because white evangelicals don't like to think that they think about race. All right, they're Christians. They're, um, they love everybody. Um, but historically speaking, <laughs> historically speaking, uh, I mean, th that's where, what history can do for us. Okay, let's just, let's, let's see how these, these political allegiances kind of came came into being. And, and the backdrop of the civil rights movement is really important to consider. Um, so three, three different things going on in the 60s and 70s, the feminist movement, the anti-war movement slash Vietnam, and the civil rights movement. And uh, within white evangelicalism, you do have a, a variety of different responses um, to the civil rights movement. So somebody like Billy Graham, fairly moderate, uh, you know, was against segregation and uh, uh, tepidly supportive of, um, of civil rights up to a point. Uh, many, many Northern evangelicals very much like that. Yes, supporting um, basic civil rights um, up until 1965. And um, you'll have a lot of Southerners, however, who were vehemently opposed to uh, uh, desegregation 
and to the civil rights movement more generally, and uh, the influence of Southern evangelicals. So you have, um, you know, this kind of migration of Southerners into um, the the Sunbelt region, into particularly Southern California. So <laughs> you know where, where you're from, and uh, it, the the Southern uh, values, uh, including uh, unreconstructed kind of uh, racial views are deeply embedded within uh, evangelicalism because from Orange County, they kind of spread out through the media empire and through, you know, that was kind of a crucible of the religious right. And so historically speaking, just plain old, old fashioned racism is also a part of white evangelical identity. Now, where this gets hard is that for a lot of evangelicals um, who don't feel particular racial animosity, um, perhaps who are you know more reflective of the the northern response, uh, when they hear this kind of language of no, actually we have to confront racism in, in evangelical uh, tradition, uh, they get easily offended, right? No, that doesn't speak to my experience. And, and part of the problem is that evangelicals, uh, starting in the 1970s, really stopped talking about race for the most part. Um, but they talked about other things uh, that could were were deeply about race without having to mention it. So take, for example, you know, school desegregation. A lot of evangelicals decided to kind of skirt the desegregation laws by starting uh, white flight schools, Christian academies. And then when the government tried to say, no, you don't, you know, and send the IRS after them, uh, then uh, they mobilized. As uh, and that's actually critical to the the kind of early rise of the religious right. Um, now they were not saying that they were mobilizing to defend segregated schools, and that's key. They were saying that they were mobilizing to defend parental rights and the authority of the parents to um, keep the government out of you know that relationship between parent and children. So it's family values, but it's also deeply about race. Right. Um, Christian nationalism, same thing. Christian America used to be great. And then things went bad when in the 1960s. That makes no sense if you're not a white American. That's a that's very telling. And, you know, the the thing that I notice in that is that there's a a real irony, not necessarily even a hypocrisy on how they approach that, Um, because, you know, in the Bible, we see that there's a lot of collectivism, you know, and and in the West, we don't really do collective very well. Uh, we do individualism, and so I can see the whole parents' rights thing. But then uh, when you start talking about all the other stuff on the latter end, it's all collective. And it's, but it's, but it's separative, separate as collective. I don't, I don't even know what to call it. And so, yeah, I, I think that it's amazing. Well, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. This is kind of the one piece that I want to say. And after that, I can probably shut up the rest of the, the interview. You and Devin can just talk because he needs, he needs somebody to help him process this. <laughs> but one of the biggest pieces of what happened this past summer was the fact that a lot of individuals, whether they be white evangelical or even some black folks, uh, were awakened to this aspect of history that we've not seen in history books. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and call a spade a spade and say that I do believe that maybe 30% of your book needs to be in a McGraw-Hill or um, you know or something like that. Like genuinely needs to be a part of that. And so, you know, I mean, for what it's worth, I don't, I don't even know if I really have a point, but I just, I'm amazed at how, um, I don't know if you know of uh, Brandon J. O'Brien, uh, he's in Tim Keller's camp. He wrote a book called Not From Around Here. He talks frequently on the single story narrative. 
and how that has had a dramatic impact on how individuals in these subsects of our societies view one another. Uh, when if they would legitimately just sit down and have a conversation with each other, they recognize that they have a whole lot more in common uh, than they think. I think that a lot of that actually kind of plays its part in this as well, which, you know, it doesn't, I, I see it. I, I know it. I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm doing here. I know it does not bode well for individuals who say that they love Christ and they love all. Um, and like you're saying, to that extent, would probably not even be classified as racist. Uh, but nonetheless, it doesn't mean that, you know, they have not continued to uphold these racist ideologies. So, yeah, no no point. I just really wanted to bring that out because that that was one of the things that I really realized as I was reading this book. I was like, well, doggone. It's like, it's not like they were intentionally trying to do the most evil thing on the face of the earth, but, but look what they did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so law and order politics is a great example, right? So in, in the 60s, that's where, you know, to answer your question of how did what evangelicals end up voting Republican, like that was one of the mobilizing issues, both aggressive uh, foreign policy militarism and uh, law and order politics at home, which is a deeply racialized concept, right? It's it's white <laughs> law enforcement enforcing order over against civil rights agitators and people of color, right? And so this too is right at the heart of evangelical politics. And it's it's really kind of shocking to me as a historian how, I mean, we're right back in 1968 today, back with the, the law and order politics. And it is as racialized today as it was then. Yeah, I feel like we never actually defeated that whole thing. So much like the enemy goes, right? So if, if one generation doesn't take care of something, I heard, a, heard someone recently say that if I don't take care of the issues of my time today, then my kids are going to face them. And we didn't do a good job of taking care of those things. We thought we kind of put a Band-Aid on some of it with the Civil Rights Act and things like that. But we, we didn't actually <laughs> eradicate what was going on. And something that's been kind of a, a thought in my mind over the last couple of weeks is how much the conservative evangelical group of people have perfected the zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. They are able to avoid racism as being an issue for them because we have to focus on abortion, gay rights, monetary issues, protecting our borders, and we can't have any crossover. Our Venn diagram has to be two separate circles. We, we can't have any overlap at all because then that means we're justifying everything that the other side does. And you know, whenever we're talking about the election coming up, neither side has can struggle so much with why the other side could possibly vote for what they're voting for. Well, because we're both playing zero-sum games. So what is it called? That's called now a package deal ethics. Yeah, basically, which is yeah. which is pretty much what that means. And it's so frustrating because you know I've always been a little bit of an outsider uh, with church. Like I've been a believer my whole life. But I never had that rah-rah military <laughs> crazy mentality. Um, you know, I grew up, I, I like sports and, you know, yeah, I had Desert Storm trading cards too and I had G.I. Joes and, you know, whatnot. Um, but I was always more uh, interested in, in the arts or things like that. And now as I'm a little bit older in my life, that's given me some perspective, but it's interesting how much the historical context of what you wrote set up why maybe I've felt that way for so long. And so why is it, do we think that the church leaders have ignored the history of their own church? They're so focused on the history of the church start back in, you know, at post Christ, but they're not even that concerned with recent history, American history, when it comes to the church, they basically just ignore it. 
Yeah, they do. Well, because there's power in ignoring history because then you can pretend like it's always been this way. Can you say that one more time? Because that just, there, there's power. Yeah. What? Yeah, there's power in ignoring history because then you you can present it as though this is the way things have always been, right? God ordained throughout all of time. This is how gender roles are supposed to look. This is what it means, you know, to be a faithful Christian. This is what, um, and so one of the the powerful things I think I can do as a historian is to just just say, wait a minute, things haven't always looked the way they look now, right? And so let's look back in the 19th century. What did it mean to be a Christian man then? Oh, gentlemanly self-restraint. Okay, good to know. Let's look at World War I. Uh, you know, we're, um, we're all conservative Protestants, rah-rah military. Actually, no, interestingly enough, many thought that it made no sense to call America a Christian nation. Okay, let's remember that, right? And then we can start to see if it didn't always used to look like it does now, how did we get here? And, and that's really what this book does, step after step. And, and what it comes down to is individual, mostly men, <laughs> made decisions one after another, usually motivated by uh, enhancing their own power, frankly. You know, then we can see kind of, okay, that, that's, how this, that's how this works. That's how we get to where we are today. And none of it was inevitable. And we can debate over whether or not it was God ordained. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, it sounds like this is the episode we should have had Chase on. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about men and responsibility. I believe that alone. Yeah, I always uh, cringe a little bit because we just had our, our men's uh, retreat slash evening. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy going and I go and I hang out. But the promos for it are like dirt bikes and electric guitars and axe throwing. And I'm like, can we just like listen to some indie music and maybe wine taste? You know, no, that's not, that's not how it's going to work. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's not the definition of, of being a real man. You know, that's the funny part about it though. Cause I, as I'm, as I'm reading the book, like I know me, um, you know, I, I'm not as, as good as Devin and we have a good friend, Josh, uh, at, 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 you know, crying at the drop of a dime, but I love shedding my tears. Um, but if anybody knows me, you know, that it, my, my golf course is the gym. And, and, and that's how, that's how life is supposed to be as far as I'm concerned. And if somebody ever had the audacity uh, to try and say that I was not a man because, you know, I like crying or, you know, I might have a, a secret desire to be a, a girl dad, um, which is, is questionable <laughs> in today's society. We're going to leave that alone. Um, you know, I will gladly approach them to their face, which is something that, you know, weak minded men don't do. And uh, I don't, you haven't seen me. I'm, I'm a large individual. Just trust in that. I I want to I want to respect your time, and I know that Dev's got a few more questions, I'm sure as well. But um, you know, the the name of the podcast, of course, is Eye to Eye, and uh, it's short for Inspire to Inspire. Uh, one of the things that we do here is we redefine the understanding of inspiration um, as that which births the inspiration to do something, and that doesn't always look the way that people think. You know, oh my God, that was just so inspiring. So I'm going to go and do so. No, sometimes you know that inspiration is birthed in pain that inspiration is birthed in anger. Um, you know, I, I feel like you've got a bit of a seedbed here, uh, a story of, of why you were able to write this book. There was a quote unquote inspiration. Would you mind speaking to that briefly? What, what, what caused you or what inspired you, excuse me, uh, to, to, to write this book? Oh, you know, it was, uh, the book goes back more than 15 years, actually, the research for this book. And it was when my students brought me a book after I just lectured on Teddy Roosevelt in a U.S. history class and showed them how ideas of masculinity were linked to American power and militarism and religion. And they said, Professor DeMay, you need to read this book. And it was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. 
And Eldridge opens his book with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And this is an essentially militaristic, militant conception of what it means to be a Christian man. And, um, and, and so that, that was really, um, when I started reading that book and then finding out there are dozens and then hundreds more of these kinds of books on how to be a Christian man, what really struck me was, um, again, for all their, their talk of being Bible believing Christians, uh, there weren't a lot of Bible verses in these books. Uh, (laughs) They're looking to Hollywood. They're Mm -hmm. looking to Mel Gibson's William Wallace. Uh, they're looking to John Wayne, to, you know, uh, uh, cowboys and soldiers and General Patton and General MacArthur. And, and you know, I'd kind of taken evangelicals at their word before that. You're Bible believing, right? We, so we can work up across differences by saying, let's look at the scriptures. Let's open, let's open God's word. And what does it say here? And then I started to realize that's not how this works, is it? Or there's a cultural lens that's being applied. And, um, and so that really um, sparked the book. I set it aside for a time um, in part because it was so disturbing what I was discovering. And I had a hard time figuring out how, how marginal is this? Um, is this fringe? And now, of course, the book sold more than 4 million copies. Then we have Mark Driscoll and we have all this awful stuff going on. Um, but no, you know, I just wasn't sure how, to, how, how mainstream this was and what I should do with it. Uh, uh, but then I, I kept seeing, I kept an eye on these guys. And one after another, um, they became implicated in, in scandals of abuse of power or sexual abuse. And I just kept tabs on them, not Eldridge, by the way, but many others. Um, and and then 2016 came and uh, and Access Hollywood and all of a sudden it clicked for me. And I thought, we have seen this before. We have seen this. There's There are patterns of white evangelicals embracing a strong man, uh, abusers. And um, and I that was the inspiration. Um, long, long story, but the, this book was a long time in in kind of making and in writing. And so um, I, I just needed to understand, you know, what this corruption of the faith, how did we get to this point? How do we explain this um, in the hopes that we can, we can undo some of it? That was, that's funny. That's actually one of the questions that I had was how long did it take you to put this book together? Because there's so much information and so much feels like thought really put into every chapter and how it it jumps around, but it still connects. Like, it's not like we're jumping from thing to thing. It's just so, it's weaved together so nicely. And, you know, one of the things you're talking about is books and movies and things that might inspire Christians. Yet I keep hearing from pastors across <laughs> the nation about media is bad. We need to we need to ignore the media. <laughs> you know, we need to be focusing on the Bible. And okay, I agree, but it's almost like media is bad only if it's CNN, or media is bad only if it's the Times. Uh, it's yeah. it's never media is bad if you got it from the Bible bookstore. But in reading your book, it's like, well, there's just as much evil motivation or manipulation or struggle for power going on in any media you consume, whether it's faith-based or not. And that kind of also made me remember the focus on the family stuff. Cause I remember that being big when I was a kid and I remember yes. hearing Dobson on the radio and my parents had Dobson books and, you know, oh, and, you know, and my, my parents are, my dad was in the military for 22 years, but was never that machismo military guy. He was, he's a very kind hearted man. It was never, he doesn't even like like war movies that much. Like that's not his thing, right? And uh, so I never really was able to connect that growing up. And now looking back, there's just so much context that 
the last four years, as you say, has kind of brought about uh, for me personally. And then reading your book really shed a lot of light on that. And it's just funny to hear the the media is bad with so much ignoring of other media that's bad. For instance, one of the things we keep hearing about is, you know, it's for the kids, it's for the kids. Everything's for the kids. Focus on the family was for the kids. Promise Keepers is for the kids. Everything's for the kids. Well, no one wants to say, well, screw the kids. <laughs> so it's it's easy to say it's for the kids, yet ignore the fact that things like education and healthcare and, you know, uh, properly training people how to engage with other humans is also for the kids. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so much of this is about a brand then and this kind of branding and uh, marketing because you're right, like the Christian media and then and then that, that bubble kind of expands to cover Fox News and talk radio too, which mm-hmm. is another whole discussion. Mm, but, fair. you know, so don't don't trust the mainstream media don't trust them. we need our own networks we need our own publishers we need all of this and then you know walk into a christian bookstore and there's this idea that you you're guaranteed that everything in here is christian right it's all good it's all safe for the kids it's all good for all of you and so you know what passes for that then it's incredibly powerful and that is christian so that comes to define orthodoxy whatever's on the shelves of family christian store but isn't that also the very definition of an echo chamber? <laughs> well, yes, it is, right? And it, um, and so it's very hard to have uh, any any uh, kind of confrontation of some of these values are very quickly weeded out through the distribution networks. So I'm sorry, your book isn't going to be stocked on the shelves of Family Christian, or it's not going to be published by Lifeway, right? And so there, there we have it. And so it's easy to exclude and to set these boundaries. I'm glad that you uh, mentioned that part of it because what I find funny is how the conservative news or media is very much, you know, that mainstream media. And then the next sentence they brag about being the number one rated news (laughs) channel or, you know, all those mainstream books. Meanwhile, Wild at Heart sells 4 million copies. Like, yeah. And then, the, like, it's just crazy to me. Like, you are mainstream as well. You you just feel like, again, it's this fringe militant, like, collectivism of of enemy fighting. And, uh, you know, and then even beyond that, you've got your, your InfoWars and your uh, oh, One Come America on. News Network, which is, I mean, geez, even, even conservative people rag on that as being just utterly <laughs> insane. Uh, it's It's wild how much media does influence and yeah, just because it's on the shelf at the Bible bookstore or because it's a newsletter from a Christian organization doesn't make it any less media. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, you know, because to be fair, I, I think that when you wrote this, you weren't really trying to rail against white evangelicalism. I'm just, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put that in the atmosphere. I don't think that that was the point, I, I, you know, no, because I mean, if, if we listen to language nowadays, especially in our society, you know, th- this book could have been far more, oh, let me, let me take every opportunity to throw you under the bus. You know what I'm saying? I, I know that for a fact, you know, so I don't know. Yeah. And so, you know, I just, let, let that not be like, a, I don't know. I feel like I, I need to make the next public statement before the, the hate mail comes, which I don't care about. But, you know, we hear it eye to eye. We're not railing against white evangelicals. No. Uh, but no, I mean, this, well, this, is, this, is, this is what I see. Shut up. Jordan, we are self-professed to love pettiness. I mean, 
I know. I, you I, know. I, there's a difference between pettiness and railing, though. Yeah, you but know, the, well, the, the, the I probably rail sometimes. Maybe it's okay, maybe yeah, it's just yeah, me. No, yeah, you you will rail. I'm allowed yeah, to. Yeah. I'm a white evangelical. <laughs> All that to say, no, you know, the, this is this is what I really actually appreciate about your book, and you know, uh, well, I'm sure you've gotten some affirmation from a couple other folk, and I ain't nobody, but you know, just just understand this. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot recently, especially about the understanding of agape love, and when it comes down to it. You know, the the definition of agape love and its illustrations is not what everybody thinks that it is all the time. Um, and, the, and the ones that I really love pulling out are one, of course, Jesus, because Jesus dying on the cross was very sacrificial agape love. And how many of us are really to, willing to lay down our lives for somebody? You know, that, that's, that, that's for free. That's, that's not even in my notes. But the, the big piece for me is how many of us actually comprehend the nature of the arguments of Jesus being agape love, the many times that he had to correct a Pharisee, um, the many times he had to correct a disciple, uh, you know, or even my, my favorite one, of course, um, is Paul opposing Peter to his face because Peter was being fake. He was being two-faced. He was being phony. He was not representing the gospel correctly. And, you know, this is, this is what I think. And, you know, feel free to speak uh, your heart about it. Um, I think that, you know, I do believe that they are Bible-believing folk just like we are. Now, a question of the literacy of, of the thing can be definitely called into the equation. But, you know, I do believe that they, they believe in the same Jesus, the same God, the same Holy Spirit that we do. But I also see, especially in our current society, Western civilization specifically, a call for accountability and the design of agape love to really be in praxis. Um, because right now we don't have proper orthodoxy and without that, we can't have orthopraxis. And I think that's exactly what this book does. Do you feel like, you know, a, a real big part of your heart in this is the acknowledgement within yourself that you had to have a sense of urgency to tell these folks, yo, <laughs> let's, let's get your stuff straight. Absolutely. Early um, on when this book was published, one of the first reviews called it an urgent uh, and sharp elbowed book. And I actually love that um, that characterization. Um, I, I'm not I'm not out there throwing punches, right? But yeah, there are some sharp elbows here, and that was very intentional, because I spent years uh, immersing myself in this culture, and I came to see uh, how a culture of deference ended up over and over again propping up abusive systems, propping up the authority of abusive leaders, right? Um, for the sake of the brand, for the sake of the witness of the church, let's just keep it quiet. Let's cover this up. Let's let's not right hurt this witness. Uh, and so I wanted to be sure that I did not participate in that culture of deference. I wanted to speak truth. Um, so that was very intentional. I wanted to speak truth to power. I, I will also say that the responses to this book thus far um, have been overwhelmingly positive from within white evangelicalism, surprisingly. People have thanked me over and over again. <laughs> People have thanked me for the subtitle, um, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith, because they said that, that that kind of preserves that there still is a faith there that is not this corruption, right? That yeah. there still is a truth there. And I've also heard a lot of people say that um, this, this book has actually given them more empathy for white evangelicals because now they can understand, oh, this is where it came from. Otherwise, like, what do you have to work with? Like, you bunch of hypocrites or, you know, <laughs> how could you? Or, and instead, you're like, oh, 
you, you don't have to like it any better. You might actually be more afraid of the repercussions of this, but at least you see this is where it came from. And now I can understand these people who otherwise seem just inexplicable. Yeah, I'm with you on that 100%. I think that was probably why I asked you that question. Um, because, you know, for what it's worth, I'm a very enculturated individual. You know, I, I, I love punk rock. You know, I can listen to some metal, but I'm, I'm hip hop head to heart. Um, you know, it's just the different genre of life do not really send me in a different direction or one way, except for country. No. Uh, but, it, but but one of the things that it's done is it's given me the opportunity to really be in their world. You know, I go to a, pre- a predominantly white church. Had God not called me to go there, I don't I don't think I'd have been there. I can guarantee that right now. You know, I love my leaders. I love everybody there. Um, but let one thing be understood, though. I think that one of the the big pieces that the Spirit was speaking to me on in this was just the understanding that we are so different, but the empath does not pick and choose. The empath must discover. And yeah, you know, I had an opportunity to get in their world. And for what it's worth, I gave them as much opportunity as I could for them to be in mind because it was not the same. And this is what I saw. You know, this is what, you know, just wasn't about cornhole and and them loving camping and stuff. It was really more so about worldview um, and everything that kind of shaped theirs. And, you know, I was like, well, dang, you, you can't understand where I'm coming from because this has been your environment um, and environment produces uh, what environment produces. And so, you know, it's, it's the thing that keeps me so curious and, and having conversations. Even with, you know, Devin, Devin's cool. He's a cool kid, but he's, he's definitely still a white boy at heart. <laughs> and so, you know, having conversations with him has always been enlightening. And, and I just, I love the fact that um, I think what you said is absolutely valid. It gives us these different perspectives, these different vantage points. It's like the gospel. It's unity and diversity. It's, it's the different vantage points that all are telling the same story, but maybe just a little bit differently. And so, you know, I know that for what it's worth, some people in my world are probably going to look at me when we release this book or this, this episode and be like, the hell are you doing? Um, but, you know, we've never really cared about that. But also what I do think is that when we take the opportunity to present this vantage point now, um, I think it is, it's going to produce a different level of empathy. Um, and I think it's going to give people hopefully the comfort and the confidence to be able to start that conversation because it's absolutely necessary, especially in these white evangelical spheres. Well, I want to thank you. I know you said you got a lot of thank yous, but I want to thank you also. <laughs> so just accept, accept just one more at least. Uh, I'm going to be recommending your book all over the place because it did something for me, which I've been really intentional about over the last several years, which is providing context to my beliefs. And this provided so much context and insight to the church that I grew up in, the church that I you know, grew to love, and the church that I've grown to question uh, quite a bit uh, over the recent years of, of my adulthood. Um, you know, But I think it's important to be intentional about putting these contexts into place. One of the things I keep hearing people say is, you know, gosh, don't let this election destroy, you know, your relationships. And I like to tell them it's not the election. The election's bringing out about people's actual worldviews, actual beliefs, and where they stand. So the fact is, if the election's going to bring that stuff out, the larger conversation is, why do you believe what you believe? And should you continue to believe it? Uh, it's not the election. So let's let's keep that in mind going forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there uh, is there anything uh, particular that you did not say that you would love to tell the people 
Oh, I think I think we've covered a lot here. This has been great. Yeah. Yeah, but trust me, we we, we really could have had five hours in, in this conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Trust me. Oh, here, absolutely. No, this is great, and I I, I love to be able to uh, I mean talk with both of you through this book, and it's 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 really been just a profound experience for me as a writer to um, have the book so um, personally received uh, right, at such a deep personal level and embraced and and kind of used to do exactly what what I had had hoped again as a historian to say let's just let's step back and see how we got to this point and and of course the last line in the book is what was once done can also be undone and that's that's I, I just hope that this book is able to it doesn't tell us where we need to go next uh, it, we're gonna all need to, to speak into that. Um, but hopefully it can clear some space for us to start having that conversation in, in much more productive ways. Well, amen and amen, amen. Well, Kristen, thank you so very, very much for coming and hanging out with us. Um, this has been a blessing, beyond a blessing. And uh, hopefully we'll have you come back when you write the book that explains how we're going to resolve all this. Yeah. Oh, man, that'd be so helpful. You and your research team. <laughs> God, boy. Like I, <laughs> Can I borrow them? I got a couple of things I need to knock out. Um, I graduated. They were amazing. Yes, I miss them. But no, remember my next book is on is on pumpkin spice. That's right. That's Never right. Never mind. Mm-hmm. Don't get the next book. Definitely get this book. <laughs> Man, all. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm a white evangelical when it comes to PSL theology. Uh, how Starbucks has ruined Evan Lattes. Yeah, I think is what it's gonna the oh, subtitle. On, See, there's that whiteness I was just talking about. Dark on it, man. Dark on it. Again, Kristen, thank you so very much for coming on, and hopefully we will have you back on again for sure. Uh, you have no choice in the matter. You're you're coming back. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys once again for tuning in to the latest and greatest. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, download every other thing that can help in, induce largeness in an algorithm because people need that. Um, and always, please don't forget to be inspired to inspire because that is what the inspired one does. I am Jordan. I am Devin. And we will have you next time. Please stay safe. Wash some hands. <laughs> Wear your mask. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, where are you at, bro? Come I'm on. here. What we do every single time. <laughs> I know. Uh, wear your mask. There's too much going on in my brain after reading this book. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's fair. <laughs> that is fair. Wash hands, wear your mask, and we will catch you next time. Peace. listening to the latest and greatest episode please don't forget to follow us on fb inspired one enterprises on insta at i underscore the number two underscore i 
podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave five stars and a generous review because you love us and want us to be successful as we do you. Thank you once again for rocking with us. And remember, be inspired to inspire because that's what the inspired one does.